the world has moved on to bigger and probably worse things, but mm. I thought a few things are worth highlighting from it. They're funny or notable. The first is from Channel 9, and it has this election tradition of giving ousted politicians brutal computer graphic enhanced send-offs on live TV. So over the years, it's shown the avatars of defeated incumbents being shredded, punted over goalposts, even kicked by a red stiletto known as the Bish Boot, named after Julie Bishop, Australian politician. Yes. This time, you remember that? Yes, yep, yep. it was very sure striking. Yeah. <laughs> Literally very striking. Um, this, this time they ushered the losing candidates off to the image of an ukulele playing robot miming along to the backing track uh, of Dragon's April Sun in Cuba. If you can't imagine that, here's a clip. It is time to crank up the robot, crank up the baggage conveyor belt, go to Cuba and start sending them on their way. And who is first? It is the ALP's member for Griffiths. Goodbye, Terry oh, Butler. Big call. Uh, yeah. You might regret that one. Okay. Oh, they've just ruined that song for me. <laughs> I'm glad, you're actually probably the last person in the world to have that song ruined for you. So, in a way, kind of congratulations. <laughs> I, I don't know if you heard it at the end there, but there's kind of a whooshing sound, and that was that was the sound of the ukulele playing robot smashing a suitcase containing the image of the defeated politician off the baggage conveyor belt. So they got booted off with this ukulele. It's quite a humiliating spectacle, but this all went on while the politicians, maybe they were being sarcastic, but they really played it straight. Uh, they intoned pretty grave eulogies for these politicians. And so this is what that sounded like. And it's also their staff, the, the people who yep. have dedicated their lives in some instances to working with these members. They so, believe in the cause and they lose their jobs as well. And Jason Falinski was certainly not expecting to lose his job tonight, but that certainly looks like he's gone the way the others with a Teal Independent. So he's gone as well. There's that wash again. Wow, yes. Oh dear. Right. We'll have to check that one out. It's quite jarring, isn't it, having mm. April Sun in Cuba in the background while... They are doing these, you know, goodbyes to the to the staff who have lost their jobs. Nevertheless, that's some of Nine's coverage. That's Australian election coverage for you. Uh, other networks weren't quite as successful with their gimmicks. There was the rival uh, network, Channel 7. They disposed of their defeated politicians by having hosts pricking a bubble with that politician's face inside. This was a pretty difficult task. So here's an example of how that went. And for Tim Wilson, <laughs> let me get this finger. Tim Wilson, it is uh, <laughs> gone. Bong. Uh, oh dear. Oh dear. Really long pregnant pause waiting for that bubble to pop. I think it's like the weather, you know, when when the weather presenters are doing their segments and they're looking at a screen off to the side of the screen, they're trying to locate where the VR behind them actually is. <laughs> so it was it was a difficult task for him. I mean if that all seems like a lot of merriment over what was really an election wipeout for Scott Morrison's Liberals, it wasn't all jolly in the Australian media, media, that is for sure. So pundits on Rupert Murdoch's TV network Sky Australia, they weren't taking the results in such good humour. And this is one of their hosts, Sky News host Rowan Dean, with a typically measured response to the election. 
Now we are faced with three years of hardcore left-wing government that will destroy the fabric of this nation. We will see our living standards crushed, our livelihoods damaged, our cultural institutions devastated, our kids' future prosperity decimated because, despite every warning we gave you, Scott Morrison and the bedwetters betrayed their conservative base. And then they all lost their seats. Wow. It's a sage and very measured uh, commentary and analysis <laughs> from Lauren Dean. What, what's getting these commentators this riled up? So the change of government, first of all, I mean, it's a very partisan media over there, particular Sky News Australia. Of course, that's the main thing. But I think they were probably pretty worried as well about an apparent change of mood in the electorate in multiple polls across Australia. You had voters saying that their top issue was climate change, and that was reflected in the results. You had this wave of these so-called teal independent candidates winning in key states. You had the Greens getting their highest ever vote, and the shift was particularly pronounced in Queensland, where you know they've oscillated between being flooded and on fire over mm. the last few years. So the election result was probably pretty good news for the climate, maybe the environment, but it wasn't exactly great news for the nation's most coal-loving news network. And this is a network that has used climate change as, you know, cultural fodder, really, over the last few years. So they might be a bit worried about losing that battle. Uh, Media outlets have dubbed this Australia's climate election, even though for much of the campaign they were criticised for focusing on gotchas and trivialities and numbers and, you know, what's the CPI, you know, name it now, that kind of stuff. And on that note, you might remember this response. We've we've played it a few times on Midweek and Media Watch, but this is Green's co-leader, Adam Bant. You said in the speech that uh, wages growth wasn't going uh, particularly well. What's the current WPI? Well, <laughs> Google it, mate. I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah, this is one of the major emerging critiques of the Australian election coverage, right? You know, why did the media focus so much on these fact-checking exercises and gotchas rather than the more substantive stuff? Yeah, I think... Part of it is just the nature of election campaigns. You know, you follow politicians around, you get their schedule in the morning and you follow them around like, you know, a lapdog in some ways all day and you go to the factories with them and then they stop for a brief stand-up and you shout questions at them and you get short responses. And it's not exactly a great forum for getting into the nitty-gritty on issues. I mean, there's also the fact that these stories are just an easy win. Politician forgets the number, ha, 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 you know, it gets a few clicks. There's possibly another part of media culture as well that's contributing to it. Uh, and thing that makes these stories appealing. And the fact is that a gotcha is pretty much apolitical. It's just a fact-checking exercise. You're right or wrong. Whereas something like climate change or gender equality, which voters named as some of their top issues, they can be seen as more politically loaded. And if you ask about them, you take a stance on them, you get opened up to accusations of bias. And so not actually taking a stance on that stuff makes you seem more objective or or like uh, you're taking what's called by media critics a view from nowhere. And it's kind of a fake objectivity, though, which requires journalists to not analyse things critically and not take in the quality, not assess the quality of the information they're receiving. And so uh, I think that that's possibly partly it as well. However, Business Desk recently showed us how it was taking climate change seriously, didn't they? Yeah, 
pretty seriously. It published an article on Sunday from general manager slash motoring writer Matt Martel, where he announced he would no longer be doing any reviews of petrol-based cars. What, what was his reasoning? Yeah, he, he doesn't say the words climate change in the article, but it's pretty clear that it's about climate change. The first sentence is that he can no longer justify writing about vehicles that are powered purely by petrol. So it's obviously a choice that's motivated by environmental concerns. A lot of the cars that get featured in motoring sections are kind of gas guzzlers that are pretty terrible for the environment. Mm. Yeah. Well, I suppose it's a relatively bold move, especially considering how much money is wrapped up in the motoring industry and how much of it flows to news organisations by way of advertising. You see those big yeah, flash I, ads, eh? They are. They're, I think that it's housing is the other one, but this is another really lucrative kind of cash cow for the media. It, there are a few factors that make it a little bit less painful for an organisation like Business Desk to take this stance. It, it it gets a lot of money from subscriptions rather than ads, and it has to distinguish itself as as a niche brand. It's not a major uh, media player like the Herald or Stuff or something. So uh, I did have a brief chat with Matt Martell, and he said that the move had actually gained them a few potential sponsors. So having said that, it's still a pretty brave thing to say from your motoring writer, I'm not going to talk about petrol-based cars anymore. And I think it's notable, but if only just for – because for all their talk about climate change, believing in climate change, it's serious, it's the biggest story in the world, uh, there's not that many other media outlets that have put their money where their mouth is in, in this kind of way. Mm. So it is, it's pretty interesting to see a media organisation walking the talk. Yeah, exactly. It, it's refreshing to see. Yeah, there are media organisations that speak to the reality of climate change and they allow it to shape parts of their coverage and editorial decision-making this is taking that to another level, and and the real kicker is that it's allowing it to affect income streams. So that's where that's where the next stage is for the media, right? We're at a stage now where some of our assumptions about the way the world is structured are going to have to change. We're going to get off what the UN president Antonio Guterres, uh, uh, Antonio Guterres has called the path to an unlivable world. It's interesting as well. You know, it's a small business publication making this move rather than a company like, you know, for instance, Staff, which has a, a strong stance on climate change and has funded its own climate section, the Forever Project. Mm. It does that, but it has a motoring section that still does a list of the five best utes you can buy. So there is a little bit of a disconnect there. It's not exactly a synergy. And I, I get that, but. It's an interesting one for the media. Mm, it's a start, though, I suppose. Uh, maybe eventually reporting on petrol-based cars will be seen uh, in a similar light to alcohol or tobacco, maybe. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder whether that is actually going to happen, where the media will view it through the same sort of social harm lens as it does. And, I mean, alcohol advertising is still in the media, but it isn't viewed uh, in this kind of unequivocally... Uh, positive light, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, it's hard for the media because they're not exactly flush with cash. It's not good times anymore. We're, we're heading into a recession. And I'm not really sitting in a position of condemnation here, but it is a tricky one because there's definitely an argument that it's past time to start considering at least like those thirstiest gas guzzlers, the, the Ford Rangers and Nissan Navaras of the world, the, the, the basically light tanks in that light where it's a social harm, it's doing harm. It's something for the media to be considering, particularly if they're claiming to take climate seriously, like stuff, for instance, is. And that's a question that I'll be asking Matt Martell on Sunday's show.
It's a tricky one for the media, though, isn't it? You know, motoring is a reliable income source for media, but traffic isn't exactly what it was during COVID. Um, you've got your hands um, uh, on a memo from Stuff that hints at some some of those issues, don't you? Yeah, this is an email from Stuff's chief content officer about a change in editorial direction for the company. And usefully it starts off with a TLDR that stands for Too Long Didn't Read. And it says, quote, our audience is over COVID. And it goes on, quote, we are digging deep for cracker brackets, non-COVID brackets end stories. So uh, under a heading, the C word, it goes on to note that, quote, our audience have actively moved on from COVID content and uh, the company needs to stay ahead of that trend. I mean, being over COVID is definitely relatable, but it does seem strange to say that we need to get away from COVID coverage when it is still doing so much damage every day, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly the argument. I mean, we've still got between 10 and 20 deaths a day, pretty much with regular monotony from COVID. And memos like this do contribute to this feeling that's out there that we're becoming inured to that level of death, that we're not giving it appropriate weight. And to an extent, it feels a bit like that 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 other issue that we've been talking about, climate change, where even though in reality it's this incredibly important, life-altering, catastrophic story, maybe the most important in the world, it almost feels like this intractable kind of background radiation event that doesn't have these immediately shocking newsy moments and it flies under the radar. And maybe COVID's becoming like that to an extent. Uh, some journalists are trying their best to keep the story in the spotlight. I know Mark Dalder in particular of Newsroom is kind of like John the Baptist in the wilderness right now, eating locusts, wild honey, trying to yell the truth at people that COVID is still killing people at startling rates. I mean, he's reported that for months now. But, I mean, just for instance, some of the stuff that he says, we have a worse death rate than the US. We thought of them as a basket case. We've had a worse death rate than them for months. You know, we have res- fewer restrictions in place than some parts of the US as well. For instance, like office occupancy in Chicago is still at 30% of pre-pandemic levels. We'd probably be quite a way above that. We've seen ourselves as conservative on COVID for a really long time, and maybe people aren't aware that we've actually become pretty loose by global standards. So the case there, the argument there, is if, if the media reported that information, kept pressure on the government and kept pressure on its COVID management, maybe it would be seen as, as more of an ongoing scandal that we're having these rates of death and long COVID rather than this kind of old news or sleepy story where, to use the memo's words, audiences have softened. Yeah, having said that, though, it's not exactly out of order for stuff to want to focus on the topics that audiences are interested in. No, and... I'm not putting stuff on blast here. This isn't a media watch <laughs> excoriation. I, I understand there's some context as well. For one thing, I think there's a lot of reporters that have almost spent two years pretty much only doing COVID stories. So maybe this could be read, if it could be read a bit more kindly, as a call to diversify a little rather than to just ignore the ongoing pandemic. Uh, the memo does go on to tell reporters to give voice to underrepresented communities, to hold the powerful to account, to champion the health of the planet. So these are all admirable goals. And if we have more stories on that sort of stuff, there's not really too much to complain about. Mm. Uh, but having having said that, I mean, not mentioning or backing away from COVID at this time does seem like an odd decision. And maybe part of that is just simple economics. Stuff has a business to run. It's the most popular site in New Zealand. The editors want it to stay that way. They can't be doing stories that no one reads, as, as you say. 
Yeah, and so maybe it's a function of the commercial model. There's an element of that that's just, you know, give the people what they want. And and that's not so bad. Sometimes that's really good. It reminds you to communicate in ways that actually connect with people. It's a little bit of a built-in handbrake for when you're just getting obsessed with minutiae or something, mm. or you're just getting too remote for your audience. But it can really distort your priorities as well. And I'm speaking from personal experience here. I was a homepage editor at the Herald, and we had this program called Chartbeat. And sometimes you, you wanted the numbers to be green. You wanted the green arrow to be heading up, and you didn't want stories on there where the, where the red arrow was pointing down. And, and sometimes you got a bit, I guess, uh, blind to the quality of the story so long as it made the green arrow head in the right direction. And you became agnostic on the quality of the stories. And, and maybe that, that's, that's, that's a real risk, I think, in news, and, and commercial media in particular, where you have this imperative to get clicks to get the audience uh and it can start distorting your view of the world the downside of staying ahead of your audience is that you can start to lose focus on things that are objectively newsworthy and you can stop doing the sometimes boring but vital stories that that don't get user engagement and so there's an argument as well even if we're just talking about in stark economic terms that that can be counterproductive in the long term because you do get this short-term sugar rush, but you can, if you do ignore some of the more important things, you can compromise people's trust in your brand and you can make them less likely to support you directly financially uh, in order to chase that short-term engagement. We've seen that mm. in, in subscription models on the rise now as well. Mm. Lastly, you wanted to talk about some interesting journalism in the latest listener. <laughs> Yes, there's been some pretty startling war coverage in the latest issue of that magazine. You mean the war in Ukraine? No, I, no, I mean the war on men. Anna. <laughs> the cover. I don't know if you know that it's going on, but the cover of the latest magazine has those words emblazoned in huge print on its cover, along with text pointing to a feature on that bloody conflict, asking the plaintive question. Isn't it time it stopped? Or isn't it time it stopped? Isn't it, maybe isn't it even time it began? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know either. What, what does the feature say? <laughs> a whole bunch of not too much, actually. I mean, I, the feature itself is pretty boring. It's kind of a long review of author Nina Power's new book, What Do Men Want? And it contains long passages of just summarizing the author's points without adding too much in terms of added insider analysis along with some reheated stuff at the end about gender identity, which claims people are being oppressed for simply saying that sex is a real thing. Sex as in gender, as in sex, as in <laughs> male, female, sex is a real thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, that's, I just think that's not true, really. No one thinks that sex isn't real. And the allegation people are being oppressed for saying that it is, uh, for saying that sex is real is, seems like more of an attempt to couch dehumanizing transphobic rhetoric as uncontroversial fact-sharing that people are getting inexplicably mad over. It's really, I think it's a PR tactic, but I digress. I mean, it, it's the magazine's cover that's got people talking, and it's that striking headline accompanied by the gender symbol for male, seemingly fashioned from human skin, a huge human skin-constituted symbol for male. <laughs> And that may draw you in, but be warned, the story inside doesn't quite live up to the hype. Aidan Donnell, thank you so much for joining us, Midweek Media Watch. Thank you for having me.